morning. I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 13. We're going to read the first 12 verses together, and let's stand as we acknowledge that this is God's holy, authoritative, inerrant, inspired word, as good for us today as it was for the people that first read these words from Luke so many years ago, Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being set out or sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the privilege to be here today to not only read it, but to learn from it. I pray that you would change us by it, that you would edify us and convict us of sin but also inspire us to good works of righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in Acts 13 and 14, we learn of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And the course of this first mission was quite simple. They set out from Seleucia, which was a port city near Antioch. There, Paul and Barnabas had shepherded the church for many years. And from there, they sailed over to Salamis, which was the port city of the island of Cyprus, about 130 miles to the west. You could see on a clear day the outline of the island there from the shore of Seleucia. Uh, but before we look at what happened there on the events of Cyprus, I do want to point out something that you would quickly miss, I would quickly miss here at the beginning of chapter 13. There are several leaders that are named here. There are Barnabas. Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, Saul. Niger there is the Latin word for black. It suggests that Simeon was likely from Central Africa, could have been Ethiopia. Lucius is said to be a Cyrenian, which was the ancient name for the North African country of Libya. The SV says that Manaean was a lifelong friend of Herod, the Greek Behind that phrase is actually just one word, which is syntrophos, which can either mean to be raised with 
or is a close friend of. And, you know, the tradition has it that actually he was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. Now, I don't know if that's true, whether it was that he was a half-brother or a close childhood friend. The, the fact remains that here at this beginning of chapter 13, we have a, a mixture of people whom God has brought together that is quite diverse. You've got an Ethiopian, a Cyrenian, a member of the Jewish ruling class, Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. You have the converted Pharisee Saul. This is quite a group, and it's a testimony of the gospel in action of diversity that leads into unity by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's what was happening at Antioch. They wanted to take that good work of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel west and north, out to Cyprus, then up into Galatia. And, and so as we turn our eyes to Cyprus, realize that Cyprus is a subtropical island, not unlike Hawaii. It's a little less humid than Hawaii, a little wider range of temperatures between the winter and the summer, but somewhat similar. And as I mentioned, Barnabas was from this island. And so it seemed natural to stop at his home country on the way to visit Galatia. And their method was simple. It was that the three of them, Paul and Barnabas and Saul, I'm sorry, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, who is the author of the Gospel of Mark, would all travel uh, to the island from east to west, Salamis over to Paphos, it's about 90 miles. And over those 90 miles, they would proclaim the Gospel first in the synagogues, and then they would proclaim it in the open markets to the Gentiles. But the resistance to the Gospel began almost immediately when they reached the western side of the island. Although they had the opportunity to witness to the governor of Cyprus, a local magician named Elymas resisted them, tried to prevent the governor from embracing Christianity. And you'll notice here that Elymas was Jewish. He's described as a false prophet also. So while magic and false prophecy would have been punishable by death under Jewish law, this was not Jerusalem. This was Cyprus, and apparently he was an influential man on the west side of the island. And we can see what Paul and Barnabas and Mark were up against, right? They, they aren't in Israel debating the Jewish law and doctrine with scribes and Pharisees. They're in the Wild West. This is where paganism and the occult and polytheism were supreme and and just to make it a little more wild, verses 9 through 11 tell us about the confrontation with Elymas and how he attempted to oppose Paul, how Paul ends up calling him in front of everybody, the son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, how the Lord strikes him blind. Isn't these, aren't these dramatic events? Can you imagine someone coming up in the middle of a service in these events happening here at CVP? Someone uh, doing that, it would probably shock you and perhaps dismay a few of you, but the important thing to mention is that with these events, beyond the fact that the proconsul believed, and we can't skip over that fact because that's, that's an important thing here, uh, besides the fact that he believed, John Mark leaves the group. And verse 13 reads, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And 
And Luke is sometimes the master of understatement, okay? So uh, this is just a fact simply stated, but we know from other scriptures that John Mark's leaving was far more significant, particularly to Paul. Acts 15, 37 to 40 tells us that when Paul and Barnabas later planned a second missionary journey, that Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone on with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, you know, you might have to read a little bit between the lines, and of course that's engaging in a bit of speculation, but I do wonder if John Mark realized what he had signed up for. Wonder if he thought that the trip to Cyprus would be pleasant. He was, after all, Barnabas's cousin. He had probably been to the island before. I mean, how many of us have signed up for missions events on the basis of being able to go to a new place and share the gospel in a relatively safe and sometimes even familiar environment? Well, from the start, that wasn't the case with these three men. After the confrontation from Elymas, the group went to the port city of Paphos. That's a city centered upon the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. And then walking on to Perga, that's a city that worshipped uh, the goddess Diana. So much of the city's cultural events surrounding uh, polytheism there. And in between Paphos and Perga was a stretch of land that according to history was filled with bandits and robbers who regularly attached tra uh, attacked travelers. So this is no nice, safe, across-the-border weekend missions trip. This was life and death. And this area may be what Paul refers to when he writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six when he says that we were always in perils of robbers and perils in the wilderness. That's exactly what that space of land is like there between Paphos and Perga. But whatever the reason, by the time they got to Perga, that's when John Mark left them and went back home. And it led to a falling out for a time with Paul. And it's the first little lesson for us this morning that there is always a serious cost to following Christ. If you never share the gospel or go against the flow or challenge evil, you will never be rejected. The life of faith is a life of sacrifice. We serve God in the face of persecution because we desire to be obedient to proclaiming his word. And we have an eternal hope for which we long. And whatever we suffer in comparison pales, right? Well, John Mark eventually learned that lesson. Later in 2 Timothy, we read that Mark became one of Paul's good friends and assistants. Paul would write to Timothy, get Mark. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me and my ministry. So I'm glad that there was an opportunity, a recovery of that relationship. But for now, Paul and Barnabas went on alone into Asia Minor. Verse 14 says they went on from Perga, came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Well, Pisidia, as well as Iconium, which is mentioned in chapter 14, 
verses 1 through 7. Lystra, which was mentioned at 8 through 20 of, verse, of chapter 14. These are all regions in the province of Galatia. These are the churches to which Paul preached, established, and later wrote his letter of Galatians. And I want to stop here and, and direct your attention for a bit to a few key portions of that letter to the Galatians because you have to understand, and it's helpful for us, that these churches that are in Acts 13 and 14 are the ones to whom Paul is writing. It'll help us establish a better connection with these chapters and understand the major obstacle that Paul and Barnabas faced. Galatians 1, 1 through 5 says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there's much of that that is familiar in terms of being parallel to other letters, but there's not an accompanying, you know, I long to see you, or I miss you, or uh, the, the kind introduction that we often see with Paul. And you can't tell it from these words directly, but you'll find out, I mean, we find out from the rest of the letter that he's actually pretty angry and astonished. Because only a year or two after the events recorded in Acts 13 and 14, he hears that people came into the churches that they just established and that the Galatians had begun to tolerate, if not embrace, a different gospel that contradicted what he and Barnabas had taught them. And I'm sure you can understand some of that frustration. For example, in Acts 14, 18, or I'm sorry, 8 through 16, we learn how one of the stops on the trip was at a city of Lystra. I mentioned that already. And there they healed a crippled man. And specifically in verses 11 to 12, we read, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So the Galatians had been readily convinced that Paul and Barnabas were none other than Greek gods in physical form. They even tried to sacrifice to them. And clearly, the Galatians were gullible, having grown up into a culture of polytheism. But in, unfortunately, as soon as Paul and Barnabas left, other men, Judaizers, came into the town preaching a different gospel. And that gullibility, perhaps held the day, and the people listened to them. These Judaizers taught that the Galatian Christians had to undergo circumcision in order to be right before God. And so, right after that intro that we read in Galatians 1, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, that you're turning to a different gospel not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So apparently, the Judaizers who came to Galatia, they didn't deny that a person must trust in the sacrifice of Christ in order to be saved. What they did was much more subtle than that. They taught that the death of Christ was necessary, but just part of what was necessary, but that a person still had to add to his faith the works of Judaism, circumcision, keeping of certain dietary laws, continued obedience to the ceremonial law. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul says that these false teachers wanted the Galatians to be under the law. In another place, he says they want to try to teach you to be justified by the law, by your works. It's an impossibility. And there's an important difference between what we talked about two weeks ago regarding the responsibility of Christians today to still obey the law and what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatians. In Acts 15, verse 1, Luke writes that this same group of false teachers, they didn't just stay in Asia Minor. They crossed over the Mediterranean over to Antioch. That was Paul's home church, Barnabas' home church. They came down, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's an entirely different thing than saying that we should obey the law still. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved, is what they said. And as Christians, of course, we joyfully obey the law because it reflects God's holy standard. Not because we believe that our works will save us. And so Paul responds to the Galatians with what only can be described as this holy anger, this righteous indignation. His letter begins without that, as I said, usual friendly greeting in some of his other epistles. In chapter 3, he calls them foolish. But thankfully, that letter to the Galatians is not just an angry letter. There is also compassion that's woven through the chapters. We learn in, in chapters 3 and 4 that Paul had gotten sick after they left. Paul and Barnabas left from Cyprus. He got sick and he recuperated amongst the Galatians for some time and they took care of him. They warmly welcomed the two of them. So Paul cares for them, but their embracing of the Judaizers' doctrine of a works righteousness was the same thing as we saw in chapter 1. He says as deserting Christ, and that word deserting is a term used of a military revolt, mutiny. These false teachers so changed what Paul and Barnabas had taught them that Paul says that those who followed their teaching were equivalent to have deserting the army of God, causing mutiny, revolting against their commander and king. And so in chapter 5, right near the end of the letter, he says these hard words, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
Now, one thing you might wonder, given what we read in Acts 14, why would Paul be so surprised? I mean, these are the people that thought he was Hermes and, and that Barnabas was Zeus. Why is he so surprised by these events that happened after the two of them left? Well, he's surprised because, as he says in his letter to them later, that they were called in the grace of Christ. Christ had intervened in many of their lives and called them to be saints, which means that God had separated them out from their lives of sin. He had begun to illuminate their understanding, given them a new heart with new desires. So perhaps a better question is, why would these converts be possibly led astray to abandon what Paul and Barnabas had taught them? And I believe the reason is the subtlety and the attraction of the false gospel of works righteousness. It is a false gospel that we have to guard against in this church, in every church. The teaching that we are saved by Christ plus something else is very appealing to Americans whose motto is all that God wants is our best. It's attractive because it's something that we can do on our own, but God doesn't just want our best. He wants our utter dependence. He wants our faith in the soul sufficiency of Christ. He wants worship, yes, in the spirit, but worship also in truth. And the truth is that our best is not good enough. As hard a news that that is, it's not good enough. Any other gospel, such as the Judaizers' gospel of justification by faith plus works, is no gospel at all. And that's why Paul said, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And that word anathema means to be dedicated to destruction. That's how serious this issue is. And so when Paul returns to Jerusalem, according to Acts 15, he had to respond to accusations by the Judaizers. It was going through every single place that he established a new church. This doctrine of works righteousness was infecting the entire missionary effort and eventually found its way down to Jerusalem. Galatians 2.2 describes how Paul went there not only to answer the accusations of the Judaizers, but also to make sure, it says, that he was not running or had run in vain. You can, this, is, this is more than a decade after his work of, of ministry, particularly in the church in Antioch, and to think that, that all of this is coming through and infecting the churches. How disheartening it must have been to hear that even the elders down in Jerusalem wanted to call him to question. And the good news that we'll find out next week is that the gospel was upheld and supported at Jerusalem. But unfortunately, that was not the end of the issue. Because Paul returned to Antioch, confirmed by the leaders at Jerusalem, but then one of the very ones who had confirmed him, Peter, came to visit him, and Galatians 2 describes what happened, that when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter's name, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is a familiar story to many of us. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So this is the mighty Peter, right? This is, this is the one whom we saw weeks ago had the vision and then spoke with Cornelius. This is the one who proclaimed the resurrection of Christ in the temple court between Annas Caiaphas, the Roman governor, and the Sanhedrin. Remember that? This is the same Peter who had been miraculously freed from prison who slept peacefully on the night of his planned execution because he was unafraid and, and faithful. This is the Peter of all of those things. How could he fear those who were of the circumcision? Well, I'll tell you what. I think this is a particularly relevant lesson for me. It is often easier to be bold before non-believers and the world than it is as a leader to stand against the tide of discontentment within the church. Including when the church is enamored with subtle false teachings. And you don't need Judaizers to come in and lead a revolt against the gospel because the drift away from truth can happen all by itself slowly over time and people grow comfortable with false beliefs and it's tough to lead against the tide. It's easy to fear the response. And Peter, without a doubt, one of the greatest in the company of the apostles. Constant companion of Jesus. He had heard him preach seen him work miracles, enjoyed the benefit of his private teaching, had been numbered among the Lord's most intimate friends. He's the apostle called the rock, the first to open the door of faith to the Jews by preaching to them on the day of Pentecost, first to go to the house of Cornelius, and yet this very same apostle fell into a sin of hypocrisy. So much so and understandably perhaps so, that even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's example. How tragic, right? For Paul that his friend, his co-laborer of 10 years or more should be enticed by Peter's behavior, especially after hearing about what was going on in the churches they established in Galatia and what was going on in their own church. And then Barnabas caught up in hypocrisy. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us even the apostles themselves, when not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are at times liable to error. Because there's no infallibility that comes from rank or office it doesn't matter the title that you hold. You could be a king, a president, a pope. You could be an elder. You could be a deacon. You're still a fallible man. No crown or laying on of hands prevents a man from making mistakes. No numbers. No matter the size, make a group infallible. You can have 100 kings or 1,000 elders. But when gathered together they're still liable to error, whether they're in a council or an assembly or a convention, a denomination, whatever you please. Their conclusions still need to be weighed by the authority of the scriptures. 
The early church fathers were zealous according to their knowledge, ready to die for Christ, but many of them created extra-biblical teachings. The reformers were honored instruments by the hand of God, yet hardly one of them can be named who didn't make some error. As the Bible reminds us, let no man glory in man, but he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. So Paul's experiences with Peter, the events in the Galatian churches shortly after this time period in Acts 13, 14, they teach us that, but they also teach us that few doctrines are as important to guard against as justification by works and righteousness by works plus faith. We must be champions of justification by faith alone. The one who attempts to be justified by his works will do whatever it takes to please God. Inevitably, that either leads to depression and bitterness because there's never enough that can be done, or it will lead to a false satisfaction of thinking that we've pleased God by our own will and physical effort. And the one who understands that justification is by faith alone instead has a different attitude because he knows that only the work of Christ pleases God. And so the satisfaction that he seeks is to experience all that God is for him in Christ Jesus. One author has eloquently said these words, if works leads to a satisfaction of overcoming an obstacle, faith is the satisfaction of seeing God overcome an obstacle. Where work longs for the joy of being self-glorified, capable, and smart, faith longs for the joy of seeing God glorified for his capability, strength, and wisdom. When it comes to religious practice, work accepts the challenges of morality. It conquers obstacles through great exertion and devotion and then offers that victory to God as a way to purchase his approval. Faith also accepts the challenge of right living, but only as an occasion to become the instrument of God's power. And when victory comes, faith rejoices that all the glory and thanks belong to God. It's a good observation. And I'd say it another way, good works are those that please God and are consistent with his character, but the only way that the Christian can consistently work in righteousness is to have a heart that is motivated by a love for God and his glory. But here's a profound part that Paul brings out in his letter to the Galatians, specifically in chapter 5. He says that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Maybe you've not really processed the fact that that first word is on that list, love. And really what he's saying is love is not a work of the flesh. It is not generated by an unregenerate heart. At least not the true life-giving, edifying, self-sacrificing love that is a biblical love. Even the best examples of human love, like the love of a parent for a child, while used as examples of God's love for us, are still tainted 
inevitably by the flesh. Unless God has changed the heart. And it's that work of the Spirit that gives a God-pleasing, God-fearing love. And gifts it with faith. And the most amazing thing is this. When true love is given to us as a fruit and work of the Holy Spirit in us, not vice versa, but a work towards us, by nature we perform the acts of the law. That's the profound part. What we could not do in the flesh, we do in the Spirit. And that's what God meant when he told Jeremiah and Isaiah, I'm going to write my law upon your hearts. Not that you will have this kind of internal memory repository of all 637 commandments. What he's saying is, I am going to so change your heart, regenerate your own soul, your desires, and so on, that you will, by nature, do the things that are required by the Lord. Does that mean that we shouldn't tell other believers what God's law says about one behavior or another? Not at all. Was the problem of the Judaizers that they failed to tell the Galatians about liberty and getting rid of the law? Is that what they should have done? No, the problem of the Judaizers was telling the Galatians that you can create works of righteousness apart from faith and the indwelling Holy Spirit. The problem of the Judaizers was that they suggested that works save us rather than being the fruit of an already saved life. And so Paul finishes his letter to the Galatians with these words in chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. That's the only way it'll happen. If we live because of the Spirit's work. So friends, do you recognize your sin and how much you need the righteousness that comes from God alone through faith in Christ? Do you believe that Christ paid the penalty for you, that he rose again to sit at the right hand of the Father, that he lives to intercede for you, cleansing you of sin? As Paul writes in Romans 4, righteousness will be counted to you who believe in him, who raised him from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, as far as God is concerned, and to me, here's the most amazing part of all, before you ever produce one untainted, undefiled work of righteousness, when you sincerely confess your sin and the need for Christ, when you confess him as the savior of your soul and that God raised him from the dead, God immediately treats you as righteous. Because your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. It's not your own work. Yes, you will go on to walk in the spirit. You will go on to do works of righteousness as a result of a changed heart. But God has already, because of your faith in him and the work of his son, declared you, counted you, as Paul says, righteous. And now you can see why he was so dismayed at what the Judaizers were doing to their work in the Galatian churches. And I'm so thankful that the first missionary church described in Acts 13 and 14 took place because not only was this the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations of which we are a part, but it also resulted in the Galatian church controversy that we've explored today, which is a controversy that still threatens the church today. And it will threaten our church as well if we're not careful. 
One of my favorite songs is a song by Horatio Benar, Not What My Hands Have Done. And two of the best stanzas are these. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel. Not what I do can give me peace with God. Not prayers. Not all my sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. And so I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine, and with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. That's the attitude. That's the wonderful good news that Paul and Barnabas preached in Paphos and Perga and Lystra and Iconium and other places throughout Asia Minor and that province of Galatia, that Christ bore all of your unrighteousness on the cross and through your faith the Father imputes his Son's righteousness to you and your part is to believe what God has said about your sin and what he has done in the work of Christ. And then it's to tell the truth of that good news to the rest of the world. And the question is, will you do that? Will you rest in the sufficiency of Christ and share that gospel? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what you did through Paul and Barnabas, how you took them on this first journey through a very volatile land, a wild land that was filled with paganism, magic, and the occult, and polytheism. Father, how their first experiences were with violence and strong opposition. And yet, by being firm with the truth, you began to convert even the leaders, like the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. You began to convert the Galatian men and women. But Father, we also saw this morning what can happen if we're not careful to protect against the waves of false doctrine. We see the subtlety of wanting to appeal to our need, our desire to show ourselves approved by you, by our works. Lord, help us to remember that our foundation is based upon Christ's efficiency first. Help us to be diligent in not trusting in any particular man. But, Father, always to test what we are taught by the words of the Scriptures. And then, if necessary, to take stand against hypocrisy, against falsehood. Lord, may your truth reign supreme here at this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.